Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. I'm Julie Gould. In this episode, we're going to hear about why accuracy in art is important when it comes to it being used to communicate science, but that sometimes it's okay to be playful too, as long as you make your intentions about the art clear. In keeping with our art and science theme, each episode in this podcast series concludes with a follow-up sponsored slot from the International Science Council. The ISC's Centre for Science Futures is exploring the creative process and societal impact of science fiction by talking to some of the genre's leading authors. There are many different types of art that come under the art and science umbrella, and each one has a very different perspective on the importance of accuracy. Glendon Mello is the Senior Marketing Manager for Digital at Red Nucleus, a life sciences learning and development company based in the USA and Canada. But he's also an artist, illustrator and community advocate. He's been heavily involved in the sci-art community for several years and has spent a lot of time thinking about both art and science. And in this podcast, he's speaking to us in his illustrator capacity. If I think about that giant umbrella of sci-art and, you know, and comics and medical illustration and fine art and all these different types of artwork that can go into it, a fine artist playing with concepts surrounding, say, genetics or evolution is one thing. But that's a very different thing if it's a scientific illustrator who's doing this for educational purposes. A medical illustrator, if they get something wrong that could affect someone's real life. Glendon's fine art combines myth and metaphor with science, and so this concept of scientific accuracy isn't high on his priority list. When I put wings on trilobites, I'm not too concerned. Um, We know they were aquatic. There's, you know, tens of thousands of species. They're pretty established. It's not likely that that anything I do is going to suddenly nudge opinions into some place they shouldn't go on, on these fossils. But as Glendon mentioned, for technical drawings, this should be high on the list as they will impact scientific knowledge. This is often associated with medical textbooks where an artist might be required to create illustrations that show the form of a human body. A photograph in this case wouldn't be very helpful, too many fluids and viscera in the way, but a pen and ink drawing can capture the shapes and forms more directly. 
And this is also true for botanical art, says Lucy Smith, who is a botanical artist based at Kew Gardens in London. Well, the kinds of drawings that I do, it's almost like technical drawing. So I'm measuring everything. I'm keeping track of how I'm drawing it in terms of whether I've enlarged the scale or whether I've had to reduce something down to fit on the piece of paper. So measurement's really important, scale is really important, and so is things like dissecting flowers. So I'll pull flowers apart in a, in a very special way, which allows you to show the difference between the flowers, how, how the parts are arranged. I had to be very accurate, so accuracy really is key. But on top of all these very technical things, you've also got to try and capture the life and the spirit of the plant, so the the character of the plant as well. So you've got to be an artist and a scientist at the same time. Other artists aim to create something that is accurate, but they come up against barriers. This idea of scientific accuracy, it does change over time. This is British artist Luke Jerram. Luke has spent a lot of time reworking some of his art pieces as the scientific knowledge has changed and developed. For example, in 2004, Luke started making and designing glass models of viruses using grainy electron microscope images and chemical models as his inspiration. One of the models Luke was asked to build was a hepatitis C model, and he was presented with some very detailed diagrams of the external protein structure that he was to create. The, the diagrams look absolutely accurate. They say, you know, this is how it is. And then you, and then you ask the scientists, does it actually look like that? And they said, well, we don't really know. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of wiggle with a curve and a loop, you know. But the diagram they presented, you know, with a graph and and these sort of three-dimensional, it looks so, there's so much evidence in that photograph, that chemical diagram that suggests that this, they've, they've nailed it. But actually, when you actually ask them about it, it's not really the case. It's, it's really interesting. So uh, you end up with a with a with a room full of scientists, and then you have to sort of agree on something that everyone's happy with, according to contemporary science. But if I were to go back and speak to another room of scientists uh, from a different university, talking about the surface protein shape of hepatitis C, whatever, then uh, they might come up with a different um, solution at that particular point um it, it yeah it's really interesting so what we're presented with often looks like hard evidence from a scientific you know but actually when you when you dig down into it it that it, there's holes all the way through it a lot of the time um and i think you need 10 to 20 years to be able to look back on data to see whether something's accurate or not another barrier for luke that determines whether his model is accurate or not is the limitations of the materials that he's working with is his design actually physically possible? Sometimes I come up with a sculpture that's so delicate that actually the forces of gravity would cause it to collapse in the first place. <laughs> you know, so you wouldn't actually, it's not very buildable. Kelly Krauss is the creative director at Springer Nature and she oversees the cover artwork created for Nature and other Nature portfolio magazines. Kelly says that their work falls into the visual communication space, so her work also covers videos and artwork for editorial articles as well as research papers. But the role of the front cover in particular is to draw in an audience, and the type of visual communication that is used to do this depends on the research being represented. Photography, for example, is great for representing something specific, like a particular type of tree frog from the Amazon. 
whereas illustration tends to be effective for representing concepts and metaphors. And illustrations themselves can be very different. They can also be sort of specific when within the field of illustration. It can be sort of 3D modeling or it can be something very, you know, it could be a painting. We do as a science journal obviously have imaging and all kinds of imaging on the covers. So, you know, be from microscopy to astrophotography, depending on the topic. And artist conceptions are always fun, usually for things that, you know, we cannot see or things from the past. Let's say a paleo artist will recreate what we think a dinosaur may have looked like from a fossil. As Glendon Mello mentioned earlier, artists need to be careful how they represent the science that they're making art about, particularly when the science is about something you cannot see. And Kelly Strauss and her creative team at Nature put a lot of thought into representing certain topics of research to make sure that the cover art used isn't misleading. An example she gave was a cover that was published on the 9th of March 2017. We ran a paper about time crystals on the cover. And time crystals is, you know, it's not something that can be seen with the naked eye. And... We commissioned an illustrator, a 3D illustrator, to create something that actually looked quite real. It looked like a real object, uh, and it kind of looked like a crystal with a bit of smoke, and it had sort of a time stamp on it. And when it came time to thinking about, do we want to animate this? We decided not to, because someone might have thought that it was real. So we think carefully about, you know, would someone misconstrue this for being real, or is there something within this representation that, you know, we try to keep it, if it's something that's not known, we try to keep it sort of visually vague enough, I suppose, that it's not um, misrepresented. But ultimately, in visual communications, particularly for publishing, there is a need to make sure that the visuals aren't too complicated or busy. There needs to be a balance between accuracy and simplicity. The challenge there is to communicate simply without oversimplifying. I think visual communication in many ways is driven by, you know, sort of principles around visual hierarchy, uh, making sure the, you know, sort of main messages come across, particularly in things like information design, you know, how can we communicate and design for delivery of information that's very clear immediately, um, not overcomplicated. And I think science is by nature sometimes a bit complicated. So it's sort of finding that balance between simplifying too much and uh, being as accurate as the content demands. However, science isn't always accurate. As Luke Jerram mentioned earlier in the episode, science changes all the time. Theories are shown to be wrong, but that doesn't mean that they cannot be represented in art. Nadav Drucker is a professor of theoretical physics at King's College London, and he's also a sculptor. He uses his art to represent his scientific thinking and process, as well as the results. As an artist, you're supposed to represent something in yourself, something dear to you, something close to your heart. And uh, the topics that I research are very dear to me, and I cannot communicate them to people who are not uh, experts like me. And instead, I find a way to realise them in in clay as a pot or a sculpture. The shape is somehow inspired by the research. His research is also based on topics that are difficult to represent in an accurate, visual and realistic way. String theory lives in 10 dimensions. Sometimes these mathematical objects are 10 dimensional, then it's very hard to realise them in clay. But sometimes 
a part of this ten-dimensional space is two-dimensional. It can be a torus, and I do have pieces that look like tori. And sometimes it can be a sphere. And uh, these two shapes are particularly easy because they have rotational symmetry, so I can make them uh, on the wheel. If they are more complicated shapes, I can try to make them in a different uh, ceramic process. But not all my research is geometrical. And if I research another topic, I find a way to realize it in clay. There could be an idea in my research that has some meaning that can be translated to a sculpture. There can be a graph in my paper that would represent a shape. In one case, even there were particular figures in my calculation that looked like a very... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Similar to traditional forms of decorations of traditional Native American pottery. And then I decided to follow this by taking a shape that is a traditional Native American pot and use that as the shape. So it's a bit more remote. That whole shape was not in my research, but this is how I got to it. So I somehow find a shape that to me would represent uh, my research and then go on and decorate it. These decorations can sometimes be graphs, formulas, writings, but also equations that Nadav is working on. They can be explicit calculations that I'm doing as part of my research. They can be draft calculations. There can even be mistakes in them if they are not the final form of the calculation. So if I make a piece while doing research, we'll just transcribe what I'm thinking of now, which may end up correct or may uh, end up having uh, to be revised. But then I finish the piece and I fire it, and this is left as a testament of my thinking during this uh, scientific process uh, now burnt and frozen in this, in this clay piece. In the fourth episode of this series, we're going to look closely into an art-science collaboration where the science was inspired by art and the art is inspired by the science. But before that, we have our sponsored slot from the International Science Council about the creative process and societal impact of science fiction. Thanks to Nigel Meredith, Diana Scarborough and Kim Cunio for letting us use their music from the Sounds of Space project. In this episode, you've heard And the Heavens Sing as the Afternoon Stills, 3.10pm, from their Aurora Musicalis album. Welcome to this podcast on science fiction and the future of science. I'm Paul Srivastava from the Pennsylvania State University. In this series, I'm speaking to award-winning science fiction authors from around the world. 
I want to harness the power of their imagination to discuss how science can help us deal with the biggest challenges of this century. You can see the climate as a problem of changing and broken relationships. Today, I am talking to Vandana Singh, who teaches physics full-time at Framingham State University, but also has produced many science fiction stories, including The Woman Who Thought She Was a Planet and Delhi. Their themes span from Earth renewal to time travel. We discussed the limits of data, the power of narrative, and whether our conceptions of time could help us think about responsibility in science. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Vandana, and thank you for joining this podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about your relationship with science? I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome. One of the things I realized when I was quite young is that I couldn't do without science, but I also couldn't do without literature and the arts. I realized that I think about science kind of similar to the way I think about stories, because science to me is one way of eavesdropping on the conversations that nature is having, that matter has with matter, for example. And so the storyteller part of me is a way of conversing with Mother Nature too, because in the imaginative realm of speculative fiction, you can push back a little bit and say, well, Mother Nature, what if it wasn't this way? So tell us a little bit more about how in your own work you depict scientific endeavors or science systems broadly. In many stories, I write about scientists who are working on their own because they are in some sense renegades. They have perhaps a more holistic view of what science is or what science should be. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, of course, science is a collective enterprise. In many of my stories, I'm thinking about what the process of discovery is like. And I'm also trying to push against this notion that there is a subject-object separation. With the excuse of objectivity we have in science that you're separate from what you observe. And to me, isn't it more honest to simply, you know, say who we are before we start looking at something and trying to understand it? Because we are part of what we are studying. I have railed against this separation of subjectivity and objectivity in a lot of my own writings. And uh, I want to push this a little bit further because I want to explore with you some of the tropes in science that are problematic that you have used in your work, and how does one attempt to overcome them and get what you refer to as a more holistic view of what is happening in the world? Well, I think it begins with the history of my own field of physics. If you look at Newtonian physics, it's based on this shattered mirror view of nature, that you can understand the world if you understand its parts. And that has taken us really far, and it is a powerful way of thinking. But uh, unfortunately for us, the world is not actually like that. But if you look at this Newtonian vision, everything is machine-like, whether you're talking about physics or whether you're talking about the human body or even social organization. And the thing about machines is that machines are controllable, right? So it gives you a delusion of control. And it's not a coincidence that this view arises 
at the time, at the height of colonialism. And uh, colonialism has two aspects. Of course, one aspect is the mastery of one group of people over another and the exploitation of that second group. But it's also the mastery of humans over nature. If, like indigenous peoples around the world, if we recognize that the world is a priori complex, that the world is a priori relational, then it's the simple Newtonian systems that become the small subsystem of the whole. Okay. (laughs) And instead, we have it the other way around. And that's a problem. So going into the future, is there an alternative way of viewing knowledge and doing knowledge acquisition of knowledge creation that would be superior to science? Is narrative a more holistic approach? Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) And I wish I was wise enough to have a good answer to it. I really think that the power of narrative is crucial. Now, I know that some fellow scientists will push back and assume that I'm saying that, you know, data doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying, actually. Data also tells stories. But sometimes the stories that data tells us are insufficient because that doesn't open our minds to the questions we haven't asked yet. Part of the problem is we are getting seduced by data, data, data. Let's recognize, let's contextualize the role of data and numbers uh, within a larger, more generous and, and more holistic framework that does put narrative in front as a starting point. The thing about stories is, and especially carefully curated good stories, is that they're rich and they transcend disciplines because that's that's what the world is. Nature doesn't make distinctions between physics, chemistry, biology, and art. You can't just teach the science. You have to teach how science relates to the world. You have to teach what's happening in the world as well. Amazing. There's, there's such a rich answer here. I want to move on to talking about something that I know you're very interested in and you have explored in your works, the concept of time. Do you think alternative perceptions of time can help us think about our responsibilities in science? Well, you know, the linear notion of time is the one that dominates in science. So we think about the time axis that is stretching from the past through the present into the future, into infinity. And that's, of course, a useful thing. But we know from physics that time is not that simple that, for instance, time depends on speed, and time also depends on gravity. So time is a very slippery concept, and yet we seem to have embraced this one very oversimplified view of time. When I tried to expand my temporal imagination, I thought of time as a kind of braid rather than as an infinitesimally thin line. And then I read an essay by the Native American Potawatomi scholar Kyle White, which is called Time as Kinship, about time in the context of the climate crisis. But what Kyle White points out is that uh, when you see this looming catastrophe, which is already happening in so many parts of the world to so many communities, your reaction is naturally one of fear that or terror that this horrible thing is happening. And what do we do when we are afraid? We, we tend to 
stop thinking creatively, for one thing. Not just that, but politically, we see that people give up their agency when they're afraid. They want strongmen or they want, you know, the technocrats to take over. Technology is going to solve it. Someone else is going to solve the problem. The alternative and what Kyle White points out in his essay is that if you see the climate as a problem of changing and broken relationships. So if we think about people working together to remake ourselves and the world, it's not just that when people work together, things get done faster. Is that the subjective experience of time changes. More things get done. There's more creativity. You are less susceptible to fear. And if we can, if we can build that, then maybe there's hope. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the International Science Council's Center for Science Futures, done in partnership with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego. Visit future.council.science for the extended versions of these conversations, which will be released in January 2024. They delve deeper into science, its organization, and where it could take us in the future. Join us next week when I'll be having a conversation with deeply thoughtful Fernanda Trias, author of Pink Slime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.